0: Ground Storycasts. I'm Anya.
1: And I'm Alan. And this episode is about my favorite Kung Fu movie, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon.
0: When it comes to feelings, even great heroes can be idiots.
1: Uh, so for people who haven't watched the movie in a while or haven't seen it before, uh, a summary of what happens in this movie. Jen Yu is about to be married to a nobleman she has never met and doesn't love when she learns that the adventurer, Shu Lien, has brought a famous sword to the city. She steals it, revealing that Jen has secretly been learning wudang kung fu for years. Her master, the notorious criminal Jade Fox, asks Jen to run away with her, to live the life of a thief. Jen wants to be an adventurer like Shu Lien, though. When Jen tries to return the sword, the famous master, Li Mubai, offers to teach her his secrets. When she runs away, her former lover, the bandit Lo, breaks into her house and asks her to marry him. When Jen runs away from all of them to try and be free, death and tragedy are all she finds. This is a very long summary for a complicated movie. And I tried to look up, like, let's see a shorter summary on IMDb or Wikipedia or something. And all of them seem to think that this movie is about Lee Mu Bai.
0: Well, he's the man, obviously, so. He's like,
1: he is so incidental to this story.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's he's there at the beginning and the end, but he's missing from like the vast middle. Mm -hmm. Um, The movie kind of tricks you into thinking the movie is going to be about him.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah.
0: But I do really like the way that it kind of like fakes you out like for the first 25 30 minutes, you like think it's one movie, and then it's like, oh no, wait, this movie is actually about something else? Um, and so we can talk about sort of like what it's accomplishing, um, and why it did that,
1: yeah. Okay, so this movie is based, it's like an adaptation of a novel, uh, which was written in the 30s in China by Dulu Wang he helped like create this genre of fiction called Wuxia. Um, They're like adventure stories about Kung Fu people, you know, and he wrote five stories. A lot of this stuff, I guess in this movie, part of the reason why it's so complicated is because it takes story elements from all five of those books and like mixes them up. Yeah. So that's why when you, I think when, once you meet the main character, Jen, it feels like, whoa, how many stories are happening? We're like juggling like three or four stories, it feels like. Yeah. But I've never read those books because they've never been translated into English. So I don't know.
0: I'm kind of shocked that after the success of the movie, they didn't try to translate them into English. So
1: the reason that I understand why that is the case is because the novels are culturally dense Imagine if you're reading uh, some kind of literary book and it said that like her job was Sisyphean. You would know that that is like a reference to Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. And basically like it means that your job is meaningless. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, like if she behaved like her job was the most important thing and it gave her life, it would kind of tell you something about that character that she doesn't – value herself.
0: I see. Basically what you're saying is it would have to come with like footnotes. It wouldn't just be like exactly. a romping good time of a novel. You like have to really like for Western audiences to understand it, it would just need like a lot of interpretation, even mm-hmm. for like basic stuff.
1: Yeah. So besides the um be being adapted from the novels, this was written uh also by uh the writer <laughs> Hugh Ling Wang uh, and when I say all the Chinese names um, I'm doing them in an American way where you say like their first name then their surname it would be the opposite in Chinese culture It's a little bit disrespectful to do it this way but it is how they're listed in the production notes so I'm an American I'm this is how I'm gonna do it and it was written as a script for the Hong Kong cinema, Community, But Ang Lee got a hold of the project and he still made it in Hong Kong and with all uh, Chinese actors and stuff. But this had a very solid Western release and was due in part because of the success of The Matrix, which came out uh, just a couple of years before this.
0: So what what's that relationship? Sorry, I don't understand. Like, was The Matrix oh. also done in Hong Kong?
1: No, but uh, it has the same martial arts choreographer, uh, Yen Wu-Ping, who directed Hong Kong movies for like a really long time, since the 1970s, and um, just put together like these fabulous fights in The Matrix. And The Matrix made like a ton of money and just kind of like completely changed action movies in the late nineties, early two thousands. Like everybody was trying to be like the matrix Mm -hmm. at that point.
0: I see. So they're kind of like, Oh, Americans now have this appetite for like martial arts action movies in a way that maybe wasn't appreciated before. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So tell me about your first experience with this movie.
1: (laughs) Uh, So I was in college and um I w- I went to Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. So this came out in 2000. I was living in the dorms still. And I was in a situation where I was kind of bouncing from dorm mate to dorm mate, uh, probably because of my personality. <laughs> but who knows? Like the dorms were a terrible place. It was basically like a prison Nobody wanted to be there. The dorm that I was in had been closed for nearly 30 years and didn't have air conditioning. And it was, Oh my uh, God, (laughs) Louisiana. So it was miserable. And that'll come back in a second. Why I mentioned that. But, uh, there was this little movie theater on the other side of town that was like the art movie theater. So like if you had small release films, or foreign films and stuff, that would be where it would come out. And I was over there almost every day. I would just show up and be like, what's coming on next? And I would just go sit down without a plan, really. That's how I saw Princess Mononoke, which I talked about on another podcast, A Command of Her Own. You should go check that out. Uh, And I saw this movie.
0: Also relevant because Mm -hmm. A Command of Her Own is a Star Trek podcast and- Starring Michelle, yeah. <laughs> when I saw her in this movie, I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> now I know who it's this actor is. Captain Yeah, It's Captain George show
1: <laughs> Yep, I went. Yeah, I would go to that movie theater all the time, and there were uh, Hong Kong movie releases over there all the time. And this movie was really big. One of the funny things about this movie, so this movie has wire work in it, where the actors. They do like completely impossible things like they run up walls or they do these crazy jumps that are like 15 feet in the air. So a lot of people weren't used to this. And I remember in the theater when I saw the movie, there was a guy sitting near the front who every time somebody did something like that, he laughed like uh, Mozart from Amadeus. Have you ever seen that movie? No. I got a stop everything I'm doing and find that laugh (laughs) every time somebody did a crazy move or something in this movie I would hear this laugh
0: (laughs) oh my god and And now I feel like I'm really self conscious about my laugh in response to no.
1: It was it was so distracting at first to have like this intense, you know scene where they're like jumping across the rooftops of buildings, chasing each other over this stolen sword, and to hear this guy laughing like this. But then after a while, like I really enjoyed his his dumb laugh like by the end of the movie, and I will never forget that as a part of my uh, experience of watching this. But I really enjoyed the movie and I went home. Uh, thinking about it, like trying to pick apart, like why I liked it so much, and I kind of like realized on the way home that the movie, like I'd been watching kung fu movies for years, and this movie kind of turned a bunch of those kung fu movie tropes inside out in a way where I kind of saw the magic trick of how story structure works. Mm-hmm. And then I was so excited by that because when I was going to LSU, I was there as like a writing major, as an English major. Uh, I was trying to learn how to write fiction. And basically all the advice from the teachers was uh, just take things that happen to you in your life and then change the names. And I was like, I don't want to write those kind of stories. Uh, if you try to write genre fiction, you're a failure, was was the other piece of advice that you would get. So I just had to figure it out by myself. And this was like a big moment for me where like, I kind of figured out how genre fiction, a certain genre worked. And then I wanted to talk to someone about it. But there was nobody when I got home, except for my roommate, who was like my latest roommate in a parade of people. And he was actually from uh, southern China and spoke almost no English. Oh wow! And I <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so Aristotle said there's like a beginning, a middle, and end, and now I finally get it. And there's and he's just looking at me and like nodding his head, and then he's like, "Which bar is the best one for girls?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I, yeah, I'll help you out with that." Never mind, never mind about all this story stuff. 30 minutes of me trying to explain a Kung Fu movie to him. And he's like, I don't care, dude. I just want to go get drunk and meet girls in America.
0: (laughs) Um, And so then did you like own the movie or did you like watch it a lot after that?
1: It was a few years later before I had a DVD player, a bunch of other stuff happened in my life uh, where I lost almost everything that I owned. Yeah. When I eventually came back to LSU, I ended up, getting a DVD player and a collection of DVDs. And this was one of the first ones that I bought and I've watched it so many times that now when I watch it, I don't put the subtitles on. I just watch it in Mandarin.
0: That's so interesting. Cause I feel like this movie, it came out in 2000. That's probably like the optimal year to highlight our age differences. Cause you were in college and I was in middle school.
1: Um. <laughs> right. Right. And so... So did you see it in the theater?
0: Well, so I didn't see... I basically didn't see any movies in movie theaters Mm. for... I mean, I still don't. Um, And so the reason why I've seen this movie is because... um, I think I've talked about this before, but, like, my parents used to take care of the lawn in the front yard of our next-door neighbor. And so he... Every year for Christmas, he would just, like, give us a bunch of movies. Um, And so we had the VHS... Of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, as a gift from our neighbor. Uh, I know I definitely watched it at least like the first time, probably with my whole family. And so I'm pretty sure this was like one of the first sex scenes that I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that was like (laughs) rewatching this was just a really interesting experience for me because I think I watched it several times on that VHS when we first got it, when I was like, you know, 12 years old, basically. And then I hadn't seen it in the intervening 20 years.
1: Oh, wow. And
0: then so watching it again, I've honestly, like, before I rewatched it, I could not have told you anything about the movie. Sure. But, like, so much just came, like, flooding back to me um, as I was watching it. And, yeah, like, like I remember watching that sex scene as a 12-year-old and being, like, a little bit confused by it or, like, just like not getting it in some way, you know, like when you're a non-sexually mm-hmm. active 12 year old, those things don't really like speak to you in the same way that they do once you've had a lot more life experience. It's funny, I don't really remember like loving the movie, but I do remember being really excited for Rush Hour 3 to come out um, because mm. Zhang was in Rush Hour 3 and, and I was, like, really excited to see her in that. And so based on that, I know that I must have watched the movie several times and liked it. Um, and I just remember being, like, so disappointed having watched Rush <laughs> Hour 3 because it was such a shitty movie. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> that's how pop-culturally deprived I was at the time was that, like, I didn't know enough about like different types of movies and how movies were made to be able to anticipate that like, Oh, like she's just going to be like the hot girl in this movie and have no characterization. And like the movie's going to be shitty. And you know, I like didn't have the
1: third one in a franchise. I didn't have
0: appropriately low expectations. I like thought she would have an actual (laughs) character arc and like be an interesting person, um, which did not happen. Obviously.
1: I think she's the bad guy in that movie, right?
0: Yeah, she is. Yeah, she, she's the bad guy, but like not in an interesting way. And so, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with other Kung Fu movies. Um, I saw Kung Fu Hustle and Shaolin Soccer when they came out, um, and I enjoyed those, although I don't remember a whole lot of, about them. Um, and then recently, mm-hmm. I just watched um, the 1978 Drunken Master and then the 1994 Drunken Master 2. And so, like, as far as for what I know about martial arts movies, that's basically it.
1: Yeah, and those, uh all three of those are like um kung fu comedies. Yeah. I would say like in a if you took the larger genre of kung fu movies, that would be a subgenre of like comedy versions.
0: Kind of like how uh the only horror movies I've seen are also like comedy horrors. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Like Buffy and stuff. Yeah.
0: Uh, Oh, I wasn't even thinking that. I was like more direct things like uh, Dale and Tucker versus evil or like uh, Shaun of the Dead. I guess that's not really horror. That's more Shaun of the Dead. But yeah, like all of the more like meta things. I like watch the meta version without having the actual basis to understand what it's trying (laughs) to do, you know. So that makes sense.
1: Well, even even Buffy is like a crossroads of all that stuff, because there's a lot of Kung Fu action in Buffy And then there's also like the horror and the comedy. Like it was all the stuff that I was interested in when Buffy was on TV. I was like, oh, somebody gets all this stuff. Like Joss Whedon, his interests are my interests. So like Buffy was very easy for me to get into for that reason.
0: Yeah. I was actually going to say this movie reminded me so much of Buffy as I was watching it. And I I mean, it makes sense Mm -hmm. that Joss would have been taking a lot of the same influences that led to this um but yeah it's like a badass young woman is sort of like at the center of the narrative it's like very intentional about how it's telling the story and kind of um unusual ways it's like very much a genre mashup like there's a lot of like really funny moments and kind of like quippy lines there's also like (laughs) really intense like drama and like a lot of like intense face acting with tears
1: <laughs> people dying when you don't want them yeah. to
0: <laughs> um it's all about like the choices that people have to make and like being pulled in multiple directions there's like definitely yeah. a, f- a feminist undercurrent um going through it so
1: yeah i think it's got a lot of dna uh with Buffy for sure it so that kind of brings me to like i'm I'm gonna try not to rant on our podcast about like white supremacy and kung fu oh movies. no I think uh, you should
0: absolutely we need more rants about white supremacy like everything should be a white supremacist <laughs> rant at this point
1: it's like <laughs> it it makes me crazy though um because I care about this genre a lot and I don't want to sound like If people don't care about this genre, then they're white supremacists. But it's one of these things where someone like a Joss Whedon or a Quentin Tarantino or some kind of like, you know, somebody who is like a filmic scholar or a storyteller will watch a lot of this stuff and will appreciate it, will understand the language of it, and then introduce it to a white culture. And then everybody goes, wow, you're an amazing genius. And it's like, yo, you stole that. Like, you, you just straight up took that. And at least, like, I guess with like Quentin Tarantino, like, you can you could see in Kill Bill that, like, okay, clearly, like, all of this is like other movies that have been kind of mashed together the way that you did all your other stuff. Um, but you know, like casting a white lead, or like all the characters are white almost in the in Kill Bill.
0: Yeah, Bell. you have Lucy Liu is the only one, which let's be honest is more Asian people than they have in Firefly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The whole premise of the show is that half of space was founded by Chinese people.
1: Right. Yeah. There's a lot of problems in Firefly uh, with the Chinese culture thing. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that I'm talking about where you get like somebody like George Lucas who takes the samurai movies from Japan and like turns them into star Wars and then George Lucas is like an amazing genius who introduced the world to like Taoist ideas through the force. You just It's just white people taking Asian culture and then taking credit um, for everything, and even from the Hong Kong film tradition, which was like its own thing that grew up alongside Hollywood and alongside like French and Italian cinema. Mm-hmm. These were all kind of growing independently and getting their own kind of internal filmic languages and pulling from stories within their own cultural context. So like in Hollywood, you have Western stories of like cowboys. And then in Hong Kong, you have these wuxia stories, which had been novels for a long time, getting adapted into well, you know, like we call them Kung Fu movies over here. And then the movies that made it over to America were like some of the best produced movies in Hong Kong. They had some of the best action, but Hollywood didn't want to sink a lot of money into making a good dub that would help you to fall into the story of Kung Fu movies. And so the most famous thing about Kung Fu movies when I was a kid in the eighties and nineties was like the Wayne's world joke, you know, where like they could speak in the language and you would have the subtitles underneath and the people on screen wouldn't be talking anymore, but the subtitles would keep going and going and going. Or (laughs) the lips didn't match up with the bad dub that was happening. And it'd be like, I will punch you in the face. And then, you know, like the mouth is still moving or something like that because they didn't even try to do it in a way where you could believe in it. And the whole thing comes off as silly and really interrupts your ability to sink into the story and believe in it and take it seriously. And I don't think that's an accident.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's hard to know what people's motivations are, like how much of it was them on purpose trying to um, like, not have competition or versus just them not taking it seriously and not appreciating it right. as art. And so not treating it that way.
1: Cause I am presenting it in kind of a conspiratorial way. And I think that's the problem when, when we talk about white supremacy so often, like people get their feelings hurt and they get defensive. They're, they're kind of like fragile about it because it's like, you're accusing somebody of like, well, I don't have a Ku Klux Klan hat. Like I'm not part of a conspiracy to like, keep down people of color or something. I just don't like these Kung Fu movies. It doesn't make me a racist. And, um, you know, and Hollywood is like looking to make a buck. That's the main thing that they're doing. So that if they feel like people wouldn't buy into this stuff, uh, then there's no reason to dump money into it. I don't know. Like the treatment of the whole genre as a whole, um, you know, like we say, Kung Fu movies or martial arts, like you just think about martial arts for a second. Like, like, as a term Mm -hmm. that that just means like ways of fighting. But in America, you would never say like, Oh, I do martial arts. You'd say like, I do boxing or I'm in the wrestling club at school. Mm -hmm. This movie over here is about karate. This one over here is about Muay Thai. Those aren't the same at all, but they're all kind of wrapped up in this one genre just called martial arts because they're all like, an Oriental way of fighting mm-hmm. that isn't Western. And so doesn't need to be disambiguated the way that like fencing would be disambiguated from English boxing or something like that. You know yeah. what I mean?
0: Yeah. It's definitely like just grouping a bunch of things together. Cause we're not very good at telling them apart rather than like, because they actually really belong together.
1: Yeah. And I find that that like all of Oriental culture tends to get summed up that way. In, like, people saying stuff like woo woo about like yoga or other practices from Eastern culture that have made it into the West, it would be like, I really enjoy doing yoga or Tai Chi, but I don't want to deal with any of that woo woo, which sums up like the entire cultural context in which yoga was invented as a practice, as a spiritual practice. It would be like, oh, I don't want to deal with chakras. So, I'm just going to sum up the entire culture of many different countries and on a whole continent and say woo woo. And I don't think that people do that maliciously, but they don't think about it when they say it. Like, it's a very specific thing. And to just dismiss like entire sections of humanity is like, it's not good for us. And there's a lot that we're missing out on.
0: Yeah. And so, kind of going back a little bit, in terms of uh, like modern Hollywood, sort of making movies more for specifically Chinese audiences and more generally international audiences, um, I'm curious, you didn't get a chance to see The Meg, did you?
1: Uh, no, I haven't seen that. It's about like a giant shark.
0: Yeah, it's about a giant shark. So for various reasons that I <laughs> won't get into, I went to go see that movie in the movie theaters I was very surprised by how bicultural that movie was um, and how well integrated the sort of like American and Chinese aspects of it were. So it's like set off the coast of China and half the the characters are Chinese and a lot of the dialogue actually is in Chinese with subtitles. Huh. And like, yeah, the like main romance is between Jason Statham and this Chinese woman the way that the two worlds were sort of interacting felt very, like, seamless and natural. You know, as someone who's, through my work, my scientific work, like, worked with international teams abroad, like, the, definitely kind of, aside from the, like, actual science and, like, sci-fi nature of it, like, the collaboration, like, felt very normal. And, and like, going out of the movie, I just felt, like, angry that it was, like, 20-fucking-18, <laughs> before like you didn't figure this out before now and like (laughs) part of me is like upset that it was like basically capitalism that Mm. led to this you know
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know because like so much of of capitalist incentives are just like literally destroying the world right now and so like maybe it's nice that it led to one good thing but like Ugh. Yeah, it was just so frustrating that, like, oh, so, like, now you're making, like, good multicultural movies with, like, Asian characters that are well-written um, and, like, making American audiences read subtitles, like, because you're trying to pander to the, like, billion-dollar Chinese <laughs> movie audience. Like, right. that's what finally made that happen. Like, great, thanks. Awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I want to see that movie.
0: <laughs> you should. I think you would like the magazine.
1: I think that Hollywood is a lot better about that stuff now. And yeah, maybe it is because of like capitalist forces. I think it's also because of a generation um, we're into these movies. You, you had like, you know, during my childhood, like uh teenage mutant Ninja turtles,
0: mm-hmm. uh, there
1: was a lot of anime and stuff like that.
0: Well, and also just more people who grew up on like this kind of media and then like the Joss Whedon style interpretations of it are actually working in Hollywood. So that helps too.
1: Yep. If they grew up liking it, then it's going to make its way into the, into their art. It's just, you got to just be careful, you know, like I know that you recently uh, saw Daredevil Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's like the same kind of thing in there where I grew up reading Frank Miller comics where Daredevil is fighting ninjas, and that was like super cool to me. But once I grew up to be an adult and I looked back on the Reagan era when those stories were coming out and how Japan was a big economic threat to the Reagan establishment, I suddenly understood why Daredevil is fighting ninjas and why he, as a white man, is a better ninja than Japanese ninjas. Because that is what... (laughs) a a Reagan supporter who is the artist and writer of that story would want to be true. And so it's important that that be true in, in his fantasy fiction. And so you get like this white supremacy creeping into your Kung Fu story.
0: It's funny too, because the parts of daredevil with the hand, um, the like ninja organization are like some of the worst parts of the TV show that like don't, I think don't really land very well. It's difficult, right? Because part of the ninja mystique is that they're like mysterious and hidden and like you can't see their faces. But also, you know, like when he's dealing with like the Russian mob or the Albanian mob or like Wilson Fisk, you know, like all of these other characters have like personality and backstory and are like, you know, have some depth. And then the ninjas are just like, it's a fuck ton of ninjas.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> In, which is in itself like a kind of soft racism, and that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And so I guess, I guess what I mean is I'm not exactly sure how to solve that because the like concept of the ninja itself kind of lends itself to that reinforcing of soft racism.
1: Totally. Um, and we will get into that more as we as I try to steer this train back towards Crouching Tiger <laughs> and Dragon. Um, because there are elements of this movie which I think are confusing or potentially confusing uh to a Western audience, and it has to do with the Eastern conceptualization of power and uh spirituality that so like there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is about like, Hey, you stole this martial arts manual from our temple and how do you know how to do this stuff? Um, and then this other character, Jade Fox, doesn't know how to, she's not good enough to do this stuff. Well, Um, she's
0: also, I mean, I think the movie strongly implies that she's actually just illiterate.
1: Right. Exactly. So,
0: Which is like a big class thing, right? because guessed. the like the upper class princess knows how to read and she can decipher the manual, or I guess decipher is the wrong word. She can actually like just straight up read the manual. Whereas I think it's
1: also encoded though. It's like, oh, she can, okay. she can so break is... the code and read it.
0: I see. Yeah. And then whereas her master is just looking at the illustrations and like mm-hmm. trying to figure it out from that
1: right but but the reason that it's like that is because the monks know that to just give anyone information is irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a part of their religion. and so when you get Western missionaries showing up telling them like, oh you you know you poor heathens, you don't know about Jesus. Let us tell you all about our religion. How about you tell us about your religion? The Chinese just kind of looked at them and said like, no, we're not going to tell you about our religion. You you people are reckless. Yeah. Why would we give you power where you would abuse it and become even worse people? That would make us irresponsible. It'd be like giving a child a knife. And because Eastern religions don't try to evangelize their position to uh, people outside the religion because they would see that as a way of um, spiritually abusing them.
0: Well, also because they're not apocalyptic cults where the apocalypse depends on converting everybody.
1: Right, right. There's no rush because you'll just be reborn. You'll get it eventually. Um, <laughs> the Then that leaves the Westerner to fill in the information with their imagination. And what you get is Oriental cultures that are like super mysterious and like full of sorcery and magic and don't really make any sense and and are weird because there's no other information because they're not telling us how any of this stuff works. So we just make it up. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Also, I feel like I should clarify my apocalyptic cult comment. I've been like reading a lot in the ex-evangelical movement right now. Obviously, that's like not a good description of all of Christianity, but it's like a fairly accurate description of a narrow band of Christianity that is most responsible for actually like colonial evangelism. Right. Which again, relates back to Crazy for God because like, you know, his grandparents were in China in the early 1900s trying to convert people.
1: I think you're right, though, that there is not that, you know, it's necessarily crazy, but that there is like a pressure within the religion to get this information out and for it to be like a clear argument to the other people. And in the East, it's just like, it's not that way. It is you are not ready for this yet. And, um, and that's actually how Li Mu Bai approaches Jen as a fighter. He says, um, you know, you have more power than you do knowledge. That I, You need a teacher. You need someone to show you how to do this because you're going to hurt yourself.
0: Right. Because she's entirely self-taught. So there's no one to like, she can do the moves, but she doesn't understand the like responsibility and the philosophical underpinnings of them. Mm-hmm. Exactly exactly
1: and th- and that's one of the ways that this movie like i talked about earlier it inverts a lot of kung fu tropes in a normal kung fu movie you start out with like two people fight each other the hero loses because his kung fu is not as strong as the bad guy's kung fu and then he goes on a quest to get better kung fu he achieves that and then they fight again at the end and he wins uh, in this story, the master is trying to chase the student and saying, "I need to teach you." And the student's like, "Yo, leave me alone! I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm trying to be an awesome girl with this cool sword." She knows more than her other master who who raised her on this stuff, uh, which is also an inversion of like what is the normal thing in a kung fu story.
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with the like, and so the student becomes the master trope. Like, you can't really. <laughs> Uh, get away from that. But I did like the way that, yeah, this movie sort of comes at it from a different angle about like what that relationship is and like how the, the power dynamics work.
1: Yeah, you see it in Kung Fu stories a lot where the bad guy will surpass their master and then kill their master. And like that is one of the things that kind of signifies in the plot, like this is an evil person who needs to be stopped.
0: And that's like one of the big things that ended up in Star Wars, I guess, too. Right.
1: Yeah, and Star Wars, you know, like years ago, I was talking about these Kung Fu tropes on the message board that we met on. and <laughs> The
0: message board that should not be named.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> and one of our friends over there named Garrett asked me, he was like, do you think Star Wars is a Kung Fu movie? And I said, no, because it's based on like Um, samurai movies. Mm -hmm. But the more I've thought about that question over the years, I think Garrett is probably right in a lot of ways. And like you just said, that it really does borrow like a lot of Kung Fu story ideas and pushes them into that master and apprentice relationship, which is really like a Taoist relationship. That's how Taoism works as a religion. You there are temples and stuff where you go to worship, but the way that you are a Taoist is to have a master and to learn from that person. And there will only be like a few students per master. It won't be like a congregation situation like in a Western church. You learn directly from somebody who has a lot of knowledge and who can help guide you on a spiritual path. And that is where the, this tradition comes from in Kung Fu movies and in Star Wars of a spiritual master who is kind of crafting uh, a journey for an apprentice. And then the danger there is that as more and more power is introduced to the apprentice, that they lose their way spiritually and abuse that power. That's like where all of the interesting, crunchy stuff in the story happens. But it's straight out of Taoism.
0: It is, it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about like the novels being so culturally dense. Like watching mm. this movie, I definitely feel like it's like a very narrow, small window into like a civilization and a history that we just have no education about in the U S right. Like we spend 12 years getting indoctrinated about like the importance (laughs) and finer details of Western history, philosophy, et cetera. And there was like so much awesome shit happening on the other side of the continent Eurasia. We basically learn it in like a very shallow one dimensional way.
1: Yeah, if we learn it at all.
0: This doesn't really teach you the details of all of that, like, history and culture and philosophy, but it kind of, like, lets you know that it exists and, like, gives a vague impression of the kind of depth that's there.
1: Totally. Yeah. Uh, it warms my heart to hear you say this stuff. I love it.
0: Yeah. I really appreciated it. And like, even all the stuff about like the part where um, her family is like stationed in the West and there's these like cowboy vigilantes running around. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> it was interesting because on the one hand it like felt very familiar. It's like, Oh, the like Western rugged cowboy, but it was like done in such a different cultural context
1: low is like my favorite like i want to run away with low i, I don't know. understand i don't understand why she won't like <laughs> what's the problem why did you go, ever go back i'm so into that guy it, um
0: yeah he's oh man i think everybody needs like a, a hot tibetan cowboy boyfriend <laughs> um.
1: but even there like i like how He's such such a potent character, but he also like doesn't matter in terms of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a love interest. It's he's a choice for Jen. She's still at the center of everything.
0: My reasoning for like the reason why they they told the story the way they did with that like long extended flashback in the middle is that basically they want the sort of like slow realization by the audience for who Jen is and like what her character is. And so right. if you know about like her badass adventures with Low at the beginning, since it happened first chronologically, like it kind of ruins that reveal of like, Oh, here's this like aristocratic princess about to get married. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love the order for how they put that in terms of like slowly revealing Jen's character, and also a little bit of a fun misdirect for like thinking that the movie isn't necessarily just about Jen before you realize Mm -hmm. that it actually is. So, I've been calling her a princess. I don't know how much it makes sense to project the Western concept of princess onto their noble system, but like, (laughs) right, it feels a lot like what I would call like a princess movie, and I mean that in like a very endearing, positive way.
1: You said that to me and I was like, oh man, I've never really thought about comparing this to like Disney princess model, but I think it works.
0: Yeah, no, it totally does. I fucking love what that does to my enjoyment of the movie.
1: Yeah, I think that like the way that Jen is introduced in the story, she is kind of like an audience surrogate mm-hmm. where she meets Shu Lien, and she's like, I wish I was like you, and that's kind of like how you feel as an audience member coming to these types of stories. You're like, yeah, I want to see these cool fights and stuff. Uh, I wish I was as capable as these characters. Like, And then what you come to find out is that she's like deeper in this stuff than you could ever imagine mm-hmm. being as an audience member. Um, yeah. And it's very cool how you get dragged into all that stuff. It's masterfully done, I think. Uh, and then it also speaks to the the title of the whole thing, Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon. She's the hidden dragon. Her name in the story, uh, another way to read it is Dragon. Oh.
0: Um,
1: and Lo's name, another way to read his name is Tiger. Oh. And Tiger and Dragon are actually like embodiments in Taoism of the yin and yang. And so- the interplay between them is the creative force of the universe.
0: Interesting. So it it really is about Jen and Lo.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, I like the way that the two romances um, between Shulian and Limu Bai and then between Jen and Lo, I feel like they're both given a lot of narrative weight and have a lot of emotional impact. They don't detract from each other. They actually kind of speak to each other and reflect off of each other.
1: You can see how like Shulien is so mad at her that she is like, just go be with Lo. What the hell? Yeah. I wish I could be with, with the one I want to be with.
0: In both cases, it seems like the agency is falling on the woman to reject the romantic relationship, but in the context of a system that they like, don't have a lot of control over. So it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting.
1: The love story and duty and all of that stuff speaks to the Confucianism of the culture, uh, especially of this time. This is set in the early King dynasty. Mm -hmm. I don't like Confucianism personally, because I think that like Aristotle, Confucius was like very much a fascist who liked the good old days when men were men and women shut up and did what they were told and who was into empire and people should listen to the government and they should be efficient little workers. Um, but if you take the most romantic view of that, that you possibly can, you get characters like Sir Tay, who when offered a very powerful weapon says, no, I don't want the green destiny. I'm not worthy to have that. And, but who simultaneously knows all of the history and statistics of that weapon uh, and can give kind of a lesson that he gives to Jen's father about it. At one point in the story, Mm -hmm. you see like a Confucius leader there who is like the ideal version, who is trying to help everyone around him, who is wise and philosophical and who is a total fiction that never existed in any context uh, of political reality because that's not how people are, in my opinion.
0: So going back to the sort of relationship between Limu Bai and Shu Lien, I guess my question is like so there's a lot in the movie about how like Jen can't be this adventurer because her primary duty is like to be married and form this alliance for her family. And then her duty becomes to her husband, not herself. Right. And so I guess I'm just wondering when Shu Lien was in the relationship with Meng, like, was she already an adventurer? Or did she become an adventurer after he died? Or like, to what extent would her options have been limited if Meng had not been killed? I think it's really interesting, too, how much Shulian encourages Jen to get married and to embrace her traditional role when that's like not something Mm -hmm. that she's really done at all. But it wasn't clear to me how much she actually was longing for that more traditional lifestyle herself, I guess, or how much that would have been an option to her had she been able to be with Meng.
1: It's hard to say. I think that this, the world building of the story is trying to have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, Jade Fox says the master of Wudan Monastery was okay with sleeping with me, but not with teaching me. I see. But then we see that Shu Lien owns a security business. Later in the movie, we get a Kung Fu trope called the one versus 100 battle where Jen fights an entire tea house full of Kung Fu movie cliches, Yes, which is fantastic. I love that fight, but uh, nobody like flips out when they reveal that Jen is a woman. Uh, So in this world, there are powerful women fighters, but to what degree is a rich woman allowed to do that? It's kind of like, why would you choose this life if you already have a life of privilege?
0: Yeah.
1: I think also Shulian's advice to Jen is um, based on that kind of Confucian traditionalism. Because you say that she didn't get married to Meng, but we see at one point she has an altar to him. In a way, she has been married to him this whole time because she's been honoring that promise that couldn't be fulfilled, and she hasn't been with anybody else because of it. Did that allow her to own the business and stuff? Like, that's a question that I feel like the world building doesn't answer. And mm-hmm. she's giving Jen the same advice you should be proper.
0: That's true. And yeah. I don't
1: think that's the advice she would give her at the end. I don't, that's not the advice she gives her at yeah. the end. In fact, she says, be true to yourself, whatever you decide.
0: So, we should talk about the ending, I guess. Or, well, actually, no. Before we talk about the ending, let's talk a little bit more about the choreography. Um, Because you sort of Mm. mentioned the tea house fight scene. I'm not usually that into fight choreography. Like, when I'm watching Buffy, I tend to zone out during most of the fights. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of the fight scenes in this movie were just amazingly choreographed And they all felt really different from each other. And they all felt like were like directly tied to the plot and sort of like reflected the plot at that moment. I just feel like we especially need to mention the final fight between Jen and (laughs) Shulian. I mean, it's cool because they like come up with a plot relevant reason for her basically to go through all of the different weapons. So you get to see like six completely different styles of fights between the two of them because Mm -hmm. Shu then is using all of the different weapons that are available to her but like none of them are really a match for the strength of the green destiny
1: yes i'm just sitting over here smiling at like everything (laughs) you never thought that you
0: would ever have to listen to me wax poetic about a fight scene
1: (laughs) yeah i love it i mean this is all like Yen Wu Ping, who is the fight choreographer who did like fight choreography for The Matrix, you did you mention? Yeah, you mentioned Drunken Master. Um, yeah, he was the director of that, like the oh. the director of the whole movie. So he he really knows what he's doing, and he understands how to work with a cinematographer to. Like these will be the wide shots. These will be the close-ups. And how do I make the actors move? That this guy knows his stuff. He is like a veteran of Hong Kong cinema and kind of helped to build it.
0: That's so funny because there's a a restaurant fight scene I think in the 1994 Drunken Master that is actually like fairly mm. similar to the scene uh, in this movie. And I actually noticed that.
1: I said this earlier about the way that kung fu movies. Uh, have their structure where you have the fight at the beginning and then the rematch at the end, this follows that the, they duel at the beginning when she first steals the sword and she pretty much defeats Jen Uh, in the rematch, Jen defeats her. But in a normal Kung Fu movie, this would be like the victorious moment where you've kind of like overcome your problem. But in this movie, Jen has gotten into more trouble because she has beaten Shulian. Um, this is like a worse circumstance for her spiritual journey where she's even more lost now than she was when she stole the sword in the first place. Yeah. Because she's shattered this sisterly relationship with this woman.
0: Yeah. but um, oh, like love. All of the different pairwise relationships in this movie are like so good and complex and go through like really – amazing evolutions. Yeah. And I, I clearly did not appreciate it enough as a 12 year old, but I'll cut myself some <laughs> <off> slack.
1: <laughs> well, you know, but what you're saying about like the fights as being like an emotionally centered thing, I have this whole thing about Kung Fu movies are actually musicals in a musical. All of the kind of story goes on pause as we've hit like a certain emotional beat within the characters. And then the music kind of explores that emotional space. All of the songs signify an important emotional stepping stone, both in the plot and in the character. It's the same thing in a Kung Fu movie. The fights punctuate important emotional moments that are stepping stones for the characters and important moments in the plot. If you're doing a good job as a storyteller and just like in a musical, you can have music that works for or against the story. You can have like better tunes and lyrics and all that kind of stuff that kind of throws you in or out of the story. It's the same thing for action. Like if you're just having people punch and kick and it's not about the emotional moment that's happening for the characters, it's going to be less compelling than what I think this movie does.
0: It's going to be like a wasted song or a wasted fight scene.
1: Exactly. And so when people say like, Oh, I don't like Kung Fu movies or action movies, or I do like them, but I don't like when they fight. It's kind of like saying, I like musicals, except when they sing, (laughs) like you're taking the wrong thing out of the genre or you're misunderstanding what these things are. And and probably the reason for that is because of lazy storytelling that doesn't do a good job with the fight scenes as what they really are—an emotional window into the characters.
0: I love that comparison. You've convinced me. I think kung fu movies are <laughs> clearly musicals.
1: I think so. I think if you watch uh, the Buffy musical episodes, you'll see that that's
0: true. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the ending. It kind of reminded me a bit of the ending of Thelma and Louise. Interesting. The character takes a leap at the end. Um, and then in Thelma and Louise, they just like freeze the frame. So it's like they're suspended in time. So in one of my favorite episodes of Pop Culturally Deprived, our friend Allie talks about how she interprets that ending of Thelma and Louise and how she absolutely doesn't believe that in the movie, you're supposed to think that they just like crash and die at the end, that it is that there are some way they're in some way like saved or transformed. And it doesn't really end in a a crash at the bottom. Yeah, I guess I'm just curious what your interpretation of the ending here is.
1: I also love that episode of Pop Culturally Deprived. And I will link to it in the show notes because people should listen to it. I think. Yeah, it's so good the most complaints that I get from people I share this movie with is the ending. I think you can understand everything that emotionally leads to that moment. And then it's ambiguous in a way that like you're saying, like Thelma and Louise, you can kind of, you're supposed to kind of go away from it thinking and like, what does this mean? And what do I think it means? And, but I think, it takes on like a different dimension completely if you understand Buddhism and the effect that that is having culturally on the story. The Buddha said that life is suffering. Mm-hmm. That turns Western people right off and they are tend to not be interested in the religion once they hear that um, because it sounds like a real bummer. Our audience might be more familiar with a book called Rising Strong by Dr. Brene Brown. And in that book, she kind of says the same thing that if you live your life and if you risk your heart loving people, it is inevitable that you will be disappointed. You will be hurt. You will have your heart broken because that is what happens when you care about things. You cannot avoid that What you need to do is cultivate resilience in yourself. And that is 90% of what the ministry of the Buddha was about. You will have your heart broken and all the ways that you will try to fix that problem will make it worse. And you can see that in this story. Jen is full of longing,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Yeah.
1: But she is not full of like trying to learn about herself. She is not full of trying to learn about the world. Like Shulian tells her, my life is not the way that you think it is. And Jen is not listening to that. And so it doesn't matter like which way you move in life. There's costs and benefits. There's always an up and a down. Mm -hmm. And so an answer to that, a Buddhist answer, is to transcend it all stop being attached to all these desires, leave the world, become yourself fully, understand that everything that you do in this life has a cost, and then choose yourself. And that is expressed in the movie as her flying off the top of Wudong Mountain, that she's kind of choosing herself.
0: She's uh, reaching enlightenment and becoming unattached to everything else.
1: Or she's beginning that journey of like, chasing happiness has led me here where you know like it's all been it's very tragic at the end yeah so i need to go a different way i can't i can't just be with low at this point like it's not that simple
0: which personally i think is the wrong decision because yeah i think both you and i would be like no just go be with (laughs) low
1: team low yeah
0: (laughs) go live in a cave looks like a fucking awesome cave
1: (laughs) as americans we don't even question that there is goodness in sacrificing yourself for the people that you love. Mm -hmm. Like we don't think of that as a religious concept, even though it clearly comes from the ministry of Jesus. It would be the same thing in this case where this is a very Buddhist way to think about your problems. And, and I think that a culture steeped in Buddhism would be like, Oh yeah, I get it. Stop worrying about all the demands that everybody puts on you or your immature dreams about the world and uh, choose yourself.
0: That's interesting because I feel like the sort of shallow comparison that's often made between like Western and Eastern culture is that Western culture is much more individualistic, whereas like Eastern culture is much more like family and community based. But I guess that's Mm -hmm. like pretty oversimplifying. So the the final thing that I wanted to talk about was just the music. the The soundtrack is amazing, and um, a lot of it involves uh, cello solos performed by Yo-Yo Ma. Um, and so that was like another reason why I was so into this movie um, when I was younger. Is because um, I played cello in orchestra in middle school, um, and so I and I like worshipped Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> Um I <laughs> um, actually got to go see him perform live once, um, which was awesome. Oh man. Uh, so so yeah, definitely, I would suggest go uh, listening to the soundtrack. Um, and also, um, if you're listening to this, you're probably a podcast fan. Um, Yoyoma recently did an episode of Song Exploder, which is a podcast by Rushikesh Hiway. Um, from the West Wing Weekly as well. He's talking about uh, the three different recordings that he's made of um, the Bach cello suites um, over his career because and, and there's a new one that's just coming out. Um, and so I definitely recommend uh, checking out that episode if you like cello music and Yo-Yo Ma at all.
1: Just hearing like the opening chords of it with that beautiful cello music... I, like, immediately settle down into the movie.
0: And the the percussion is so good, too. Like, the drumming is great.
1: Fantastic. The two duels have, like, those amazing drum backbeats to them mm-hmm. that make the editing so dynamic, and it's, like, so much more exciting because of the music.
0: Oh, and I guess, speaking of editing, I did have one other just, like, short thing to say. At the end of the movie, when Li Mubai has been poisoned and Jen has gone off to make the antidote I just I loved the editing choices there where it's just Limu Bai and Shulian meditating quietly together mm-hmm. and I feel like the like standard Hollywood way to do that would have been like two montages of like cutting back and forth between like Jen and then Limu Bai trying to hold on with, like some dramatic music and I'm just like so glad that they didn't do that the yeah the way they presented it is just like so beautiful and tragic
1: yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought about that cuz i just at that point in the movie i'm so sunk and like usually i'm crying yeah. right then anyway <laughs> yeah i i would say last time uh, that we talked you asked me to think of like some kung fu movies and put together like a list i will uh, include them in the show notes but just to quickly run them down for folks uh, other Kung Fu movies that I really love and, and think are great are like the original Karate Kid movie, um, which is totally a Kung Fu movie. It, it follows the rules of uh, the Kung Fu story where you lose at the beginning and then win at the end. Uh, learn from your master a new style of fighting that overcomes your enemy's style. Um, the Five Deadly Venoms is like a classic in the Hong Kong movie thing, like is a direct inspiration. If you've ever seen Kill Bill, Uh, you mentioned Shaolin soccer and um, Kung Fu hustle. There's another movie that those same, like those are from the same person. He's adapting journey to the West conquering the demons is a comedy version of that story. That is hilarious and really good. Samurai fiction is also a favorite of mine. That is a comedy movie. This samurai guy who has like, um, his bodyguard is like this old man who keeps trying to do all this ninja shit and like hurting his hip and messing up his knee and stuff. And he's like a really bad fighter. Cause he's so old. The matrix is a classic. If you want to watch like a movie like this, that's all kind of emotional and stuff. I would say that fearless and the man of Tai Chi, both of those movies are amazing. And Man of Tai Chi is the first movie that Keanu Reeves ever directed, kind of like this movie, about a guy who's having an internal conflict, to be good or bad. Uh, I'll I'll leave off on um, Yip Man, which uh, if you have Netflix, you can watch that. It's like IP Man, which is about the guy who trained Bruce Lee in real life. like He was Bruce Lee's master. Oh. It talks about who he was as a young man, and about the Japanese invasion of China during World War II, and it's like one part, like historical war movie, biopic, and kung fu movie, all in one, uh, with Donnie Yen as the main character. It's fabulous movie, really good. Honorable mention to Big Trouble in Little China and uh, Legend of Korra, which I'm currently rewatching. Goofy as hell, Western versions of kung fu movies, but lots of fun.
0: Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I will, we'll probably at least get to one of those on the list at some point. And so do you recommend this movie to other people?
1: I, I've i tried a bunch of times and people usually like the movie. At least with this movie, people have heard of it, yeah. right? Like it's pretty famous. Yeah. But yeah, like usually when they watch it, they're like, that ending sucked, but everything else was really cool. <laughs> what did you think?
0: I mean, I don't hate the ending, but...
1: Ambiguous endings are... yeah. It's like, it's a hard choice. Yeah,
0: They're hard to swallow. And like, just because I don't personally enjoy it doesn't mean that I think it was necessarily the wrong choice or that like my wish fulfillment ending would have been a better artistic choice. Okay, cool. So come join us next month for an episode on Aeon Flux. And so I actually haven't watched any of these episodes yet. So maybe Alan, you can talk a little bit about what it is.
1: I've I've had this on the list for a long time for us, and at one point I felt like it had become irrelevant because what I picked out has to do with building a wall and keeping out foreigners, but it has suddenly become much more relevant in our politics. Yeah. So I thought we could bring it back. But Aeon Flux was something that really woke me up to the possibilities of stories when I was in junior high and it was a thing on MTV Liquid Television that would happen in between music videos you would get like this whole animated story that would happen they were like four minutes long like during what would usually be a commercial break and it would tell you this really weird complicated story with no dialogue and then at the end you'd be like what the fuck was that like I Aeon Flux is extremely aggressively subversive in every aspect from the design of the characters to the stories to the way that every story ends. I think that it's an underappreciated part of 90s culture. Like I have revisited it many many times and I I still find new stuff in it. I think it's a very dense uh, kind of storytelling but we're gonna be watching a couple of the shorts which are only like a few minutes long. And then one of the, in the second season, it goes from shorts to like fully animated 20 minute episodes. And the one that we're going to be watching is I think called like Thanatopia or something like that. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's about a wall that's built um, to keep people out of the civilized center of culture and um, why that is a bad decision
0: cool well i'm i'm definitely looking forward to that if you like what we do uh we would appreciate uh ratings and reviews on apple Podcasts. that's the best way for us to get new listeners um and when is this coming out february uh yeah so american gods is coming back Hmm. um uh, it's the first episode is airing on March 10th So if you like American Gods uh, We have a podcast called Shadows and Shamblers um, And we will be releasing episodes On the day after um, That they come out So it uh, should be pretty timely In your podcast feed I'm Anya and you can follow me on Twitter At strangelyliteral. That's Strangely Then L-I-T-E-R-L
1: you can follow our show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com.
0: And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Hallowed Ground StoryCast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.